Today we have Jeremy Roll on the show. Worried about the economy? You're not alone. Jeremy Roll is a student of market cycles and he's investing in assets that will do well during a recession. He's outlined the typical predictors of recessions and the asset classes he's investing in so you can too. Wouldn't it be nice to have someone else worry about the economy for you? Listen and learn. Before we jump into the intro, if you have interest in learning how to invest passively, check out my five-step process for passively investing in real estate. You can download it for free by going to darrenbatchelder.com backslash learn and then select the free PDF. Now, onto the intro. Welcome to Darren Batchelder's Real Estate Investing Show. Each week, you will learn how to grow your wealth through real estate investing, be introduced to the players that are getting it done, and learn how you can get involved. And now, here's your host, Darren Batchelder. A little background on Jeremy Roll before we start the show. Jeremy lives in California. He's an investor who lives off his investments. He's a believer of putting his money to work and doing so in the right asset classes based on where we are in market cycles. He loves giving back and he loves teaching others. Now, on to the show. Hello, everyone. Today, we have a very special guest. We've got Jeremy Roll on the show. Jeremy, appreciate you coming on the show. Yes, thanks so much for having me. I just hope our episode's helpful for your listeners. Absolutely. So just before we get started, a little bit on how I know Jeremy. Um, This is actually the first time that we're talking. Um, He is a very, very experienced investor in a lot of different asset classes, real estate and other asset classes. And I came across his name uh, after interviewing Hunter Thompson, who was on the episode, episode 56. He had great things to say about Jeremy. And he also said that Jeremy was a big part of his, you know, beginning part of his journey. So uh, very interested in hearing what Jeremy has to say. Uh, Typically, first question I ask is how many properties and how many units, but you are invested in a lot of different asset classes. So I'm going to just ask you how many investments and for how long you've been doing it. Yeah. So it's actually a funny time. We're talking about this because tax time's coming up and, uh, you know, we're recording it just before the tax deadline. And I'm in the middle of dealing with all these K-1s. So, and then inevitably I can't get them all on time, but, um, so it's a good problem to have. Right? Oh, I know. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. It still is a problem, though. But yes, uh, yes. I mean, my last one comes in probably like in July or August or something, you know, just randomly because I'm just in so many things. So I um, I have been investing since 2002 passively. So uh, 20 years. And uh, I've been doing it full time since 2007. So 15 years. And I'm currently uh, in over 60 LLCs, uh, easily been over probably 150 to 200 over time. Um, so I'm kind of hyper diversified. And to be totally honest with you, I really don't necessarily recommend it. It's, it's, it's a little much, but because I do a full time and because if you're doing it full time for that long, a lot of opportunities come your way, you end up really highly diversified over a very long period of time. So that's my situation. That's, that's fantastic. So, um, one thing that was very interesting when I reached out to Jeremy was that, you know, he actually came back to me and said, Hey, Darren, man, I'm, I'm kind of looking at this as being, I'm on a little bit on the sidelines, you know, do you want me to come on your show? And I'm like, absolutely. Look, we're, we're late in the stage, you know, in the cycle for both, you know, stocks and real estate and other investments. And I want to hear your opinion. So with that, you know, share your opinion on why are you on the sidelines? Absolutely. And I should really warn everybody, I'm not a financial advisor or an investment advisor or an accountant or attorney. So just anything I'm sharing here, just my perspective as an investor. So first of all, I tend to be really low risk, just personality wise to begin with, to be fair. Right. So um, I am currently on the sidelines because I'm concerned about asset price adjustments coming up. And the reason why I'm concerned about asset price adjustments coming up is a combination of increasing interest rates and what I think is a high probability of a recession. Um, 
And uh, I can get into a lot more about that, but in the in the nutshell, that's really why I'm on the sidelines right now. Now, when I say I'm on the sidelines, I'm still making actually many investments. Um, there's always uh, investments that make sense at any time. Um, I've had to pivot uh, uh, and really kind of create a few buckets I'm focused on that I wouldn't normally prefer to be focused on, but that I think makes sense right now, because I think also at the same time, the worst thing an investor can do right now is sit on cash at this inflation level, right? And so Ray Dalio, biggest fund manager in the world, he's got a famous quote, cash is trash at the moment. And I couldn't agree more. I mean, you're just eroding through your cash if you're not deploying it. The big challenge of the, this moment is how do you deploy it? And I just had a call with someone this morning with the exact same conversation is how do you deploy it in a safe manner if you're really low risk while not taking too much risk um, you know, for the return, but also making sure you're actually getting it working at the same time. And that's a huge challenge today. So can you answer that question? <laughs> well, that's a good, you know, um, so I, the best I've been able to do is the following. I, I'm focusing on three buckets for myself of what I'm investing in. Okay. Um, and multifamily definitely falls into this. It's just a question of finding unique. So um, first bucket is what I call short-term opportunities, right? Because one of the concerns I have is um, how do I get, keep my money going, but also maybe get access back to it in, in a year or two so that I can redeploy it in what I think will be a better pricing environment from an asset price perspective, right? So um, one really easy example of that is I, I've been doing this since probably 2008 or nine, but hard money lending where you're lending money to someone flipping a single family home, you're the first position loan. If you do it in a way where, you know, if you really want to be low risk, no leverage and the proper loan to value, you know, my opinion about this year is that because of the really strong lack of supply of single family homes, I not, don't necessarily think we're going to have the same year-over-year year increase in 2022 as we had in 2021. That was just a huge discrepancy between supply and demand. I think I still think supply is too low. I still think that even though I, the the year-over-year growth would be lower, I th still think there's going to be growth, and therefore I still think it's a good investment to make from a risk-reward perspective to get some of the cash working, you know, short term. So I'm doing some of that. So I I think that's that's interesting. With that, you know, bringing that towards multifamily too, I've. I know one guy who is filling the gap on the multifamily side. So say a syndicator needs to raise 10 million for, for an acquisition and they're going to close next week and maybe they're a million short and, you know, they can continue to raise after closing, but they need that million dollars next week. So I know somebody that will step in, do that loan, 90 day loan, short term, and then, you know, end up getting out quickly and can end up redeploying that. So do you do anything like that as well or just focus on single family? Um, hard well, money? let's just say that I would do that under the right circumstance. But the, the, so a lot of the challenge with the short term loans is that there has to be a minimum return. So let me give you a really easy example. And this is not what you're talking about, but just to make it really easy. So let's say that somebody wants a twenty five thousand dollar loan for 90 days. Okay. And there's legal costs associated with you may have to have an attorney look at the agreement to make sure it's OK. You have your own time put in. And let's say that in 90 days, you're going to make 5 percent, which is actually pretty high because annualized, that's 20 percent. Right. It sounds great. But then when you run the numbers, you're making one thousand two hundred and fifty dollars, which may not may or may not even color the attorney's cost to even review the contract that that person has sent you. Right. And then what about your time? So it really depends on the scenario, what the interest rate is. Some of those short term situations can be a really great risk profile, but the return has to be there too. But I, of course that, like I said, it could, if, if it makes sense, I'll do it. So right. it just has to make sense from uh, time and risk of reward. Sure. I mean, the structure sounded, I was, you know, I had only heard the details on, on one deal and it, and it sounded like, cause I had done a hard money loan way back when, or a couple of them way back when. Um, but it sounded similar, like points up front, 90 days interest. Um, and, it, you know, and the dollar amount is higher. So it's, um, right. It, it could be yeah. when the dollar amounts higher, that clear makes sense. But then you run into like, okay, if you're going to do it safely, you got to make sure you're diversified. So don't overdo it. Even though that's an attractive opportunity today, I'm a huge fan of diversification. Right. So, you know, just in keep keeping the risk, you just have to factor all this stuff into the exact scenario, but it could definitely make sense. Okay. So short-term opportunities. And the big thing there is, is putting your money to work, but then, getting it back so you could redeploy yeah. it when, when there is, you know, better opportunities in the market. So what's number two and three? Yeah. So number two is unique opportunities. So in fact, you know, it's funny because we were talking before we even started recording that I'm mostly on the sidelines, but 
if I told you I invested in probably seven or eight multifamily deals in the last 12 months, you'd probably be surprised. Yes, but I would be. True, right. But it's actually true. Each single one of them was a very unique structure that gave me the comfort level at this timing. Um, they were all tax abatement um, opportunities where somebody was buying an apartment building under contract as a regular market deal, highly occupied, and then uh, working with the housing authority to convert it to a partially, typically 50% uh, income restricted building. And then there's a lot of tax abatement, you, you know, in the deal I'm actually investing in right now that's live, I, it's 85% reduction in taxes, right? So you're actually reducing 41% of your expenses with no hit to the income because the key to that deal is that you have to buy a property that's so under market rents that you're actually conforming to the maximum rents as an income restricted tenant at the time without touching the revenue. It's already there. Right. All right. You're going to, you, you're talking to someone that's going to, you're going to have to go a little slower. So how does that, absolutely. how, how yeah. does that work? So it's, it's a multifamily deal. It's highly occupied. Mm -hmm. So 90% plus occupied type deal. 95, 96. Yeah. 97 right. So it, occupied. in that in itself could be an agency loan type of deal. It, it actually is an it agency, is an loan, agency yeah. loan type of deal. Okay. So now yeah. when do you get involved after they've already closed it or when the buyer is coming on and they've got it under contract? No, so, so, no just think of it as a regular acquisition. It's the regular, um, can, you know, due diligence escrow timeline. The difference is that the sponsor has already negotiated a structure with the housing authority in that local market that they found the appropriate property that they could actually uh, use this new structure for the tax abatement. So it's been pre-negotiated with the local housing authority. So they already have and that so under place when they're in contract. Yes. So the one contingency that exists in these deals is that the sponsor does not have to close unless the housing authority signs off on gotcha, it. Gotcha. Okay. So they can pull out now. Um, so otherwise it's like a normal deal, but the structure has been predetermined and pre-negotiated with the housing authority. Okay. So now let's talk a little bit about that tax abatement again. I, don't fully understand it. So how does, how does that work? Sure. Yeah, no problem. So um, I know it can be a little complicated for sure. So the way a tax abatement deal works is that the sponsor would have to pre-negotiate the structure with the housing, the local housing authority in advance. And normally the sponsor is going to target um, a building that is uh, way below market rents, like really not just like someone who's claiming it in marketing materials, but actually below enough market rents, like low enough that um, it'll conform to turning half of the building into an income restricted building, right? With a certain below area median income requirements for half the tenants. And, um, and the strategy is that you can turn a building into 50% income restricted, have no impact immediately on the revenues because the rents are already conforming to what the housing authority needs for those half units, right? It's really below market. But then the uh, housing authority will allow you just in one, this is one example in Houston, a deal I'm investing in, where the housing authority then removes 85% of the taxes. So effectively- Is that, when you say the taxes, are you talking about property taxes? Property taxes. Okay. 85%. 85%. So what it does is it actually, in this deal is actually reducing the expenses by 41%, the total expenses- Overall, and by the way, these are class A buildings, like real class A 2013, 2015 construction. And wow. we're using 41% of the expenses. So let me give you the real numbers for this to give you an idea of the impact, right? So um, this deal is two property portfolio, $165 million acquisition, okay? Um, the uh, cap rate at purchase is 3.34 cap uh, in place, okay? Um, probably at T minus 12 or whatnot. Um, with, by the time you actually reduce the expenses and have no impact on the revenue, the actual uh, lender appraisal is coming in at 200.3 million and they're only raising 39.5 million in equity. So basically there's a $35.3 million gain in equity at closing because of this new structure, because the costs are so much lower. There's no execution or operational risk from an investor's perspective because we're closing under that structure and we have almost two to one equity coverage, right? It's like 90, 89% equity coverage at closing on a real third party appraisal by the lender, the actual agency lender. It's not like someone making it up. And so the reason why it's attractive for me is not only I am now going into a class A building at this timing at a 5.59 cap, real cap on true class A property. That's like 97% occupied. So I have, I'm my year one cash flow is projected to be almost 8%, right? But the, uh, but the bigger thing for me is a downside risk mitigation because I'm concerned about asset prices decreasing. So that padding that I mentioned, that $35 million padding in the comparison of what we're buying it for versus what it's appraising for, that is a big deal to me. 
because if property prices adjust, I'm starting off with all this value add padding without any operational execution risk. And that's how I get comfortable going into this deal versus a typical market rate deal right now, concerning when I'm concerned about prices adjusting. That That is huge. I mean, look, for listeners perspective, property taxes is one of the biggest expenses on these multifamily deals. Especially in Texas. You know, and yeah, and, and, and I'm in Texas. So yeah. It, it's huge. And so if you're getting an 85% reduction in that, that's translating, like you said, into 40%, 41% less expenses. I mean, that's crazy. Now, how does that work on a go forward basis? Yeah, so, on a go forward basis, and I'm not an expert in this, but my understanding is that the housing authority publishes the maximum rents you're allowed to apply to the property um, every year. And I believe it's two years ahead. And so the, the one challenge with it is that from an inflation perspective, you can't just choose to increase your, your rents this year by more than they allow because it happens to be inflation this year. You will catch up to that because they actually, their increases are based on inflation in the future. So you may catch it up to that in a year or two, but you may get one or two years behind on actually catching up for inflation. Also note that if they say, look, in two years from now, you can increase a, a rents up to 11%, which could very much be possible. It's truly indexed. The problem is at that timing, will the market absorb the 11% increase or not that you're allowed? You, don't, you won't necessarily be able to push rents that much. So you end up a little bit disjointed from an inflation perspective. You end up 50% of the units end up being constrained by the housing authority's maximum increase limitation. The other half of the units are at market though, right? Um, and so those aren't constrained. And so that's the drawback, right? And you end up in a 99 year um, structure that's assumable by the next buyer. And the other cool thing is that it's completely collapsible for a very smart, small amount of very tiny percentage of the actual purchase price. So if what, do, what, do you mean are, by, what do you mean by collapsible? Meaning what, that if what? you are a future buyer, don't want to deal with the uh, income restrictions, you can pay the housing authority a fee to then remove the restrictions. Now you end up back at the regular tax rates, right? Um, but you're not locked into this into perpetuity. Uh, so, that's interesting because when I've looked at any kind of deal, I have not spent a lot of time on deals that are not market rate deals that are, mm -hmm. you know, low income uh, housing deals. But when I have looked at them, most of them have had like, okay, it's 20 years and then there's a line in the sand. And then after that yeah. line in the sand, there's like another 10 years yeah. and it's a long time period to get out of it. So you're telling me that not only are the buyers, negotiating this up front and closing under these circumstances. Um, so you know it going in, but a new buyer could end up opting out of it at any point in time. Yes. I, I mean, for confidentiality, I don't want to get into, um, you know, thankfully I haven't shared the address, but uh, I don't, I don't want to start disclosing. So I'm probably not <laughs> supposed to as an investor, but yes, it's, it's actually like a surprisingly low percentage of the acquisition price. Wow. That's Fantastic. Yeah. So, but the key though, my understanding is that to operate this type of building, I'm not sure, depending on the state, some states definitely require a licensed and or certified somehow. The sponsor I'm investing with started, they own about two and a half billion of properties. So they're very experienced and I've invested with them more 15 times, but they pivoted to low income housing tax credit and tax abatement deals at the end of 2016 when stuff was really expensive already. And um, you know, one thing we didn't talk about, what I, which I also like about this type of deal is that you're the lowest price, you know, class A property on the block, right? Because half your units are restricted. And if someone conforms to that, you're typically going to have a waiting list. And so when you have a recession or downturn, you also have some nice built in mitigation in terms of occupancy, because again, you're the lowest property on the block for half the units. So it's a really good strategy for, and that's why they started down the path of the strategy is because it's actually defensive from a recessionary perspective. Yeah, that's, that's very interesting. So that fits into your unique opportunity bucket. Yeah. And, and you're investing passively into this deal, right? It's, yeah, yeah, just you're, another like a limited partner, passive investor, yeah. Okay. Yep. So how do you get the call on this? Well, I mean, in that case, it just happens to be a sponsor I've invested with since 2013. They happen to have shifted focus and, you know, I'm very conservative. They're very conservative. So, um, you know, and now they have a lot of experience buying these low income housing tax credit situations. So they're really good sponsor to make a bet on even with that, because even though it's much harder to operationalize, you um, know, them and they know you would look at a deal like this. Yes. Yes, exactly. Um, so I've invested in probably seven or eight of those in the last year. Um, and again, 
there's always deals that make sense at any time. I mean, even a deal you mentioned before, the short-term deal, which is another unique deal, right? Finding that right. unique situation where they need that money for a bridge. So I, I certainly, staying on the sidelines doesn't really mean staying on the sidelines, but I'm staying on the sidelines to market rate deals is a better way to put it. And I'm pivoting into these three buckets in, in the meantime to get my money continuing to work. Yeah. And so I also want to share with the listeners, like, look, this is an example of, you know, you have to get your name out there. You have to let people know what you're interested in. And, you know, even if you're a passive investor, syndicators need to know, you know, hey, you're looking for market rate deals or you're looking for high cash flowing deals or you're looking for deals in this market or that market because some syndicators are going to blast out every deal to everybody in their database, but other syndicators are going to segment off and just show certain deals to people they think that it fits for. So um, it's important that you network with people to let people know what you want. I so, yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, and unfortunately, you know, if you're starting as a past investor, you're kind of looking into it and you don't enjoy networking or don't have the time to do networking, et cetera, then you know, that, that's probably the most important piece of what I do now. Granted, I do it full time, but that's how you find these unique opportunities, right? Everything's about networking and finding these types of deals, just the way that this world works on the syndication side. And so there are ways to invest where you don't have to network. You can go onto crowdfunding websites and other things where they're just a menu of opportunities presented to you. Um, but if you really want to optimize what you're finding and everything, it takes a lot of networking. Yeah. And I think that some people, especially on the passive side, you know, they may not see the value in networking, but you, you're not going to get invited into certain opportunities and into certain circles um, it, unless people know that you're looking for something. Yes. Um, so, hey, let's talk about the third bucket. What's the third bucket you, you look yeah. for? So third bucket is opportunities. And this is typically not real estate, but it's opportunities where I don't have to worry about the asset value or asset price decreasing because it's already going to decrease. Right. So if you look at my biggest concern over the next 12 to 24 months are asset prices adjusting down. So the solution to that is invest in something that I don't really care about the asset price going down. Right. So really good example is I've been investing in ATM machines, which is clearly not real estate since 2008. And the one thing I know about ATM machines is that they're a computer, uh, a screen, a uh, bill theater, and a keypad, and they're all going to close to zero. I mean, in the five to seven years, they're worth like maybe 5% residual value, right? So I don't care if they're worth even less than I thought they were going to be in a year from now. What I care about is predictability of the cash flow going into a recession for that type of asset class. Is it going to get through? Is it going to provide me more predictable cash flow? Because I look for more predictable cash flow. I live off the cash flow. And that's just one easy example of like, okay, I'm much more focused on the cash flow. Is I going to make it through recession? Is it going to make it through the seven year projected term that I typically invest in with this fund um, or not? And so that's another bucket that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, and I would say that one of the bonus elements of that type of situation is often the, the projected payback period is it's much more quick than a typical, more stabilized asset. Um, and so that checks off another box for me where I actually get, for example, with the, it's hundred percent bonus depreciation year one. So with the projected cash flow and the bonus depreciation at let's say 35% tax bracket, you're getting over half your money back projected in the first year. And then you're getting up to 85% of your money back within two years, assuming you can use that depreciation. So that's allowing me to redeploy almost all my capital back into maybe lower assets in the next 24 months. Right. So that's just another checkbox for that one. Uh, and that's just one example. No, that's huge. You know, one thing that's interesting, which I, I didn't think about, um, but I think it's very smart what you do is that, you know, when some somebody is saying that they're on the sidelines, you know, some people may sell out of all their stock and just be in cash, right? And we all know that inflation is eating away at our cash, um, but you're not saying that. You're saying, I want my money to be at work, but I want to be short term. I want it to come back to me quick so that if there is a better opportunity that I could lock in at better returns. Yes. And it's clearly tricky to find shorter term opportunities. They have different risk profiles. They're not, you're not typically investing in assets that's holding its value or appreciating like real estate does. So there's, you know, there's pros and cons. Uh, but to your point right now, you just have to keep your money working right now. I will look at real estate and that uh, the other deal we just talked about in the tax abatement, it's a 10 year fixed rate loan from an agency loan. So it's a longer term deal. And that's actually my favorite because I'm looking for more predictable cash flow. I'd rather find something that's going to do that for 10 years than have to find something for one year, 10 times for the next 10 years. Right. Right. So it's not right. my preference. It's just my pivot. Right. It's what I'm yeah. having to pivot to at the moment. 
So, it, I mean, this is probably an obvious question, but, um, you know, why do you think that we are at the tail end of asset price appreciation? Yeah, good question. So um, I'm very quantitative. So um, I'm just going to tell you some objective facts that I, in terms of my own research, um, there's typically three um, factors that cause a recession. OK, in the U.S., the first is in very high inflation. The second is very high oil prices going over 50 percent of the long, you know, long run historical levels. And the third is um, uh, increasing interest rates, okay, to a substantial amount. We are actually facing all three at the exact same time. All at the same time. Yes, which is highly unusual. It doesn't happen often. And then furthermore, um, I'm a very big fan of watching the yield curve to help predict if a recession is going to happen and when. And the yield curve just inverted in the last week at the two-year and 10-year, which is the one that most people follow. I, I- did it? I thought it was the five year and 30 year. No, the five year that, and 30 year did invert, but the two and 10 inverted briefly actually a couple of days ago. Oh, uh, did it really? I yeah. Did not I, know I, I think it's going to be more continuous because now it's about four basis points spread. The last time I checked it today, it's just four right. basis points, but I think we're going to hit an inversion that's going to like stick a little bit more probably in the next you know few weeks, if not sooner. So, but the bottom line is it actually did invert regardless, even if it was just intraday, it happened only for part of the day. And so long story short is that Historically, when you have uh, that inversion, you have a recession normally six to 24 months after and more commonly six to 18 months after. Okay, and of course, what happens when you have a recession, you have people spending less money, you have less demand and you typically have a change in asset prices because during a recession, we have less liquidity. Investors get scared. The stock portfolio is down significantly. They're not investing as much and prices adjust for all these reasons. Not, not the least of which are the other reasons we mentioned, right? Inflation, all these other problems. And so I personally believe there is a 95% plus chance of, of a recession in the next 24 months, just based on historical uh, data. Um, and, um, and the fact that the, incre- the, you know, the Fed is way behind in increasing interest rates, most likely. There's just all these different factors together. So, um, so I'm waiting to see what happens. At, at the very worst case scenario, what I'll say is my low risk perspective on things. I need to see what happens with asset prices in the next 12, 24 months. I invest for predictability. Right now, there is a lack of predictability of asset prices in the next 12 to 24 months. And therefore, I am on the sidelines and having to pivot into other things that make sense in the meantime. That's the best way to describe even why I'm on the sidelines for just regular market rate deals today. Yeah, that makes sense. Hey, uh, I understand the what the inverted yield curve is, but I think that some listeners may not understand what that is. Can you... Give, you know, a little bit overview on, you know, what we're talking about when sure. we talk about the two to 10 year yield inverting. Yes. And I would strongly recommend if you have never heard of the inverted yield curve, I'd strongly recommend you do some research online to understand it better because it's, it's a very important metric that is almost 100 percent accurate in determining recessions in advance. Right. So um, the best way to describe the yield curve is that if you think about it, there's Treasury bonds um, and treasuries in general that go from all different timelines, three months, one year, two year. I think there's a three year, five year, seven year, 10 year, 30 year, and probably some that I'm missing. Okay. Now in a normal time, think about this. If you want to own a bond for three months, would you expect your interest rate to be lower or higher than if you're taking the risk of holding it for 30 years? Well, the 30 year bond better be a higher interest rate where it's not going to be very attractive, right? To lock you in for longer. So normally if you look at what's called the yield curve, the interest rates go up as the length of each treasury bond goes up. Okay, so a 10 year should be a higher interest rate than a two year and a 30 year should be a higher interest rate than a 10 year. That's just normal conditions. So listeners, I mean, think about it from your, you know, your car loan or your mortgage standpoint. You know, if you get a, you know, a 10 year or 15 year fixed rate loan, your interest rate is going to be lower than if you lock it in for 30 years. It's the same thing with the with the Treasury yield curve. Yes. And what happens is that when investors get scared, the opposite happens which is actually what's happening right now. And the most common comparison that people use to help predict a recession is comparing the two-year and the 10-year. And when those invert, meaning that the two-year yield is actually higher than the 10-year yield, it signals the market's telling you that they think there's going to be a recession, they're scared. And that's what the inverted yield curve is telling you. And what's happened now is that most or a lot of, or likely most of, the comparisons you can do have inverted. So we talked about the five and the 30. The five-year yield is currently higher than the 30-year yield. 
The two-year yield just became higher than the 10-year yield a couple of days ago, briefly, and will probably happen on a more permanent basis. And there's all these different parts of it you can compare, and a lot of them are now inverted. And that's telling you the market's very scared. And then from the listener perspective, like, you know, okay, well, that's different, and I don't get it. But then what happens after? You know, like, okay, it's not supposed to happen that way. Well, you know, what it's telling you is that the 30-year, you know, the longer dated treasury is lower than the shorter dated. So eventually you would assume that the lower dated treasury will come down. Yes, right? that, yes, that will happen eventually. Now, here's the problem, though, that we didn't discuss, which is that a lot of people don't think about, is that if you're borrowing money, whether it's for a car loan, a prop, residential property, a commercial property, that's often coming from a bank. And what the bank is doing, it's borrowing short term and it's lending long term and it's making the spread. Okay, that's how they make their profit is that spread. Here's the problem. If a bank has to borrow money at a higher rate today, then it can actually lend it out out for the next 10 years for your 10 year loan, you know, fixed rate loan. There's a problem. They're going to pull back and they're gonna say, I'm not going to make this loan. It's not profitable. So we're already seeing liquidity start to get uh, lower and lower as a result of this because the yield curve is inverting. When you have less liquidity, you have less ability to actually get loans to buy things, which then slows down the ability for people to purchase assets of any type. And that starts to slow the economy and doesn't allow people to buy as many things. So that's already starting in the background. And that's one of the side effects of actually having this inverted yield curve. But that's very important from an investor perspective. Yeah. So like Jeremy said, I mean, it sounds complex, but just Google, you know, the two to 10 year spread and the predictability of, of, you know, what happens after it inverts and how many times recessions occur between six months and 24 months afterwards. It's, it's crazy how predictable it is. So um, the thing that I learned is, you know, these three factors, you know, that influence recessions, you know, inflation, which is, is screaming high right now. Yes. Oil prices, which is, which are screaming high right now. Um, and then rising interest rates so on the rising interest rates. I want to ask you, um, because I, you know, I talked to a lot of syndicators and, and I have, I hear kind of two schools of thought. Um, you know, all the press is saying there's going to be six interest rate increases this year and three or four next year. And then I have some syndicators that are like, there's no way they're going to be able to raise interest rates that much. You're going to, it, it, they're going to raise it once or twice or three times. And then they're not going to be able to raise it anymore because, and we're already, if we're already inverted, like, can they make another interest rate rise? I, I don't, you know, what's your take on all that? Yeah. So that's a great question. So um, there's a, a lot of different thought ways to look at this. And of course, nobody knows the answer at the moment, but right. um, what's interesting is that in the seventies, uh, and early 80s, I think. And I, by the way, I'm from Canada and I'm also born in 73. So, you know, I was not old enough to understand any of this at the time. I didn't really live through it realistically. But um, Paul Volcker had to increase interest rates in a very challenging environment. He actually purposely caused a recession to get the economy to slow down because uh, inflation was so high. And I believe a lot of people currently believe that uh, Powell is going to have to do the same thing. And he's going to have to raise interest rates to cause a recession. And what's happened is that the market doesn't wait around for him to raise rates six times. He, the market is already up 1.25 to 1.5%, uh, 125 to 150 basis points in response to what the Fed is saying it's going to do. So the rates are already up. Like, you know, it doesn't, you know, at this point, the question is, is Powell going to keep the course and basically just have the nerve to keep it going once the, you know, the stock market starts to come down, people get more scared and the economy starts to slow down and take it all the way to the finish line and get the real cleansing that we need of the end of a cycle. Or is it going to stop short and actually, to your point, not be able to raise rates too many times because of political pressure, because of the fact the stock markets go all these other extraneous reasons. Um, nobody knows the answer to that right now. I think if you ask 20 people, they'd probably... 10 would say he's going to, 10 would say he won't. Like, I mean, it's very subjective. So that's what, what's, very, you, what's your feeling. Yeah. So, um, God, first of <laughs> all, just being a very quantitative, objective guy, it will bother me if he doesn't take it to the finish line because the economy needs it. And, you know, we need the proper reset. 
when you look at the way that the Fed has behaved and supported the market and it had just an unbelievable amount of quantitative uh, easing over the past 10 plus years, um, I have a hard time believing they're going to take it to the finish line. But I hate saying that because I think they need to take it to the finish line. So I'll tell you what, though, the only thing I could do is sit around and wait. Right. And this is what I'm doing right now. Uh, I have no other choice. Um, but I but I also need that that to happen so I can get that predictability back. Right. I need to know where they're going to take it to without knowing. Because if I buy something today, but then they raise it 15 times, well, that was a mistake, right? Um, or if I invest in something today, I should say, um, and vice versa. So the most I could do if I want to reduce my risk is just wait it out and see what happens and see the hints and directions they're taking it. I'll tell you what I'm actually e- equally as concerned about, actually, which is yeah. quantitative tightening. So um, I don't know how many people out there know this, but I believe um, the Fed now, I've heard different numbers. I've seen that the Fed actually owns between 28 and about half of all mortgage loans right now, okay, in the U.S. And 28% to 50% yeah, of all mortgage loans? I'm using a wrong number. There's a real number, but I've heard both. I've actually read both in the last few days. I don't know which is actually correct. But either way, it's a quarter to half most likely is correct, okay? So they're supposed to start something called quantitative tightening, which actually implies that they're going to start selling these off. Okay. And they have a few trillion of these. And the problem is there's no buyers out there to actually, if they want to sell them all off, that's probably impossible, right? There's no buyers. And so at least there's not nearly enough buyers, but by definition, when they go to start to sell them off, if they actually do that, it's something they haven't started yet, but they said they want to do. If they start doing that, that should actually drive interest rates higher for loans because they're increasing the supply of loans out there without the same demand of buyers because they were one of the buyers, right? So that's something I'm watching very carefully too, because even if they can't get through all their interest rate increases, that will theoretically increase interest rates as a secondary measure. So it's not just watching the interest rate increases themselves. This is a very important point as well. Absolutely. So there's, you know, if you look at YouTube and listen to podcasts, there's some pretty high level people that are out there saying that this is not just going to be your normal everyday recession, that it's going to be, you know, the next depression that is going to be huge based on all of the quantitative easing that there's been all the pumping of money into the economy. Um, what's your take on that well, Re- regular recession or. Yeah. You know, I could tell you that, um, the market, meaning traders, are already predicting that there's going to be three to four basis, uh, 30, three to four 25 basis point decreases in rates in 23 and 24, sometime in that time frame, because the Fed's going to hit the wall. They won't be able to continue increasing. They'll be in a recession, and then they're going to have to uh, provide a more accommodating policy to help get us out of the recession. Um, I will say this. Um, I'm not saying this because I'm optimistic. I just I have to go with what the Fed has done. Um, I actually rather than not do this, but I fully see them restarting quantitative easing again to help save the market and all this stuff. And again, the question is, if, if power lean is taken to like, you know, the zero yard line on the football field, is he going to the 50 or is he going to the 10 or is he going to the zero? Right. And that's something we don't know. But I do believe that wherever he stops, he's going to start providing a ton of quantitative easing again. And I believe that there's a lot of reasons why that has to happen from a societal perspective, et cetera. I don't like where we are. I think we're way beyond the line of debt and having all kinds of other long-term structural problems because of it. But I have a hard time believing that the Fed won't step up and start being very accommodated very quickly, given how they behave for the last, it's frankly, even 20 years, right? It's not even 10 years. Um, And so um, I have to go with what they've done historically. Like what I have to do as an investor is be objective and take historical data and extrapolate into the future. I I can't really, as a baseline, assume they're going to change their behavior. I think that's not the smart thing to do. You have to assume they're going to behave similarly. So that's what I'm going with. But I don't know. We'll have to see. Right. We'll have to see. All right. Here's your take on this. Um, You know, we've all heard this before. This time is different, you know, so... Real estate prices, residential have gone, you know, crazy. Uh, multifamily, all kinds of real estate is just, has, you know, gone crazy. We've had cap rate compression, interest rates down to, you know, historic lows. Now we're, we're starting to turn the other way. And that's where, you know, gives you concern about decreasing asset prices. Um, but, you know, there is the, this time is different. You know, like we're, you know, one of the, arguments for that is 
look, we don't see the stated income loans and the no, no doc loans, you know, in the residence. Yes. These are people that actually have money and have jobs and have income. And so that's why this market will not slow down and it won't go back. I'm not saying that that's the case. I'm just, I'm saying that that's an argument I hear. So, you know, what's your take on all that? Yeah. Great question. So my first response, cause I read this all the time now is the, one of the funniest things I think I ever, I read is um, the consumer is in good shape. There's not going to be a recession because was the consumer in good shape in January of 2008? Sure. They had a ton of asset price value. Was the consumer right. in good shape before the dot-com crash crashed? They were actually in great shape. They were making a ton of money. They're always in good shape. They're always in the <laughs> right. shape at the end of a cycle until the cycle changes. So that's the first thing I will tell people. You just have to ignore that completely. That's not the way things work. I just find it hilarious when I read that. Anyway, um, here's what I would say about real estate. But a lot of people think that, you know, until, until the, right. until the story, the music stops. Right. Like, but, hey. Yeah. So, but, but the thing is, if you believe that, then my argument is that you believe that we're never having another cycle. Like it just, there's cycles are right. done. And so right. when I ask people that question, I say, look, do you really believe that cycles are no longer happening? And nobody has ever said yes. Right. right. And because if you do, then that's okay. And actually that's a framework that works for that. But if you believe cycles still exist, then we will have some type of change. Now, how much is a different story, right? You can right. have a very mild cycle. So what I would say is that um, the thing that people have to understand is affordability. Okay. So let's take single family homes. I'm going to give you some data in California. Uh, and this is research has been done by Bruce Norris, a really well-known investor who used to live in California, lives in Florida now. Great guy. He's done research for decades. He's been investing probably for 40 plus years, I think. And he shows us that in California, once you reach an affordability index of 17, you've hit the end. We can't go any further. And that's when things start to actually roll over. Okay. Now, where are we today? I'm waiting on the Q1 uh, California Association of Realtors Affordability Index to be published to see what happens with slightly increasing interest rates by that time. Plus, um, housing prices continue to be very high year over year. We'll see. I think we were at 26, if I recall, in Q4. Okay. Wow. So uh, I, there was still some room to go. Okay. But if you just want to be an objective person and not get emotional about this, you got to look at affordability and say, at some, like if prices double tomorrow in California, who's going to lend to the person that doesn't have the income to support that price? Nobody. Right. No responsible lender is going to lend right? To that person, there's going to be one or two or 3% of the population that can actually afford that loan. And if they're not the buyer, no one's going to get a loan for it. So objectively speaking, affordability is the number one thing to look at because I would tell people that yes, all the circumstances are different. There aren't these no doc, no income loans. All these things are not the same, but if we hit the end of affordability, that means the cycle is theoretically done. And then we will have an adjustment. What would that look like? I don't know. But right. that, that actually, that is the objective way to look at it. I, I think that, that that is a very smart way to look at it. Actually, that's back, I was living in South Florida back in the early 2000s. And during 2002 to 2006, I was working for a large bank on their trading floor, trading large loan portfolios between mm. banks. And that was what I was saying. And I actually told my wife, let's sell our house, you know, um, price... Prices are going up 20% in Florida and incomes are going up 3%. And at some point, something's got to give. But, you know, her response was, well, one, where are we going to live? And I'm like, oh, we'll just move into an apartment. And second thing is, well, for how long? Yes. And I'm like, that's the part I don't know. I don't know if, if this is going to continue to run for a year or another three or five years. And she's yes. like, we've got two young kids. Like we can't live in a, you know, we don't want to live in an apartment for, for five years. Right. And so we, we didn't. Right. And, and it, it did adjust and we could have sold, you know, significantly higher than we did it. Um, but that is a real thing. Affordability yes. at some point, And that will hit, I believe that will hit not only residential, but it will also hit, you know, rental rates, you know, but you know, the other side of the equation is, okay, well people lose their homes and they have to move into apartments. So that's, right, but, but again, people. let's go back to the same argument though. By the way, they're not necessarily wrong. So there was a large shift to rentals between 09 and 12 or 13 and apartments became extremely popular. It was the first popular, most popular asset class at that time. Cause it made logical sense. People are going to be renting more at the same time though. 
if you continue to compound rents at a 15% clip, what we've been seeing for another three years, you will not be able to find a qualified tenant because you are going to be careful as the owner to make sure you're renting someone who could afford the rent because you don't want them to just sit there and squat and not pay the rent. So everything has its limit, right? Um, And of course, every market's different. But that's why I go back to affordability. Just from an objective perspective, there is a wall to affordability for anything you look at. I mean, there's even a wall to affordability for a Ferrari. If they if they increase their prices by 10x, they would sell probably 5% of the cars they're selling and they'd have a big problem. So it, it applies to everything. Right. All right. So affordability, um, you didn't bring it up. I'm bringing up timing. You know, um, I've been surprised at times how long, like when something seems obvious out of whack, how long it can continue to run before it corrects. Yes. So what's your take on that and where you think we are? Yeah, great. So look, real estate takes a long time to adjust and it's because it's in a liquid market. It takes a long time to sell a property. You don't just sell your, you know, you're not selling an Apple stock and the next person selling Apple stock like a millisecond later and the price is just constantly discovered. So this bid and ask spread between what someone's asking for a property, what you're willing to pay, takes a long time to adjust and it takes a long time psychologically for the seller to adjust downwards. That's how a typical end of cycle and beginning of adjustment works. So real estate could take a couple of years to properly adjust depending on what it is, right? Um, I'm referring to residential here just to kind of make it easier to understand. Um, The other thing to your point is that a cycle typically lasts much longer than you expect it to. Right. Uh, but there are some tell, telltale signs and I'll give some people some right now because we haven't quite hit the, you know, the recession period yet. So in 2008, um, I distinctly remember because I was like, he was actually on the sidelines between 05 and 08. I was very young. I was going to dinner parties with my friends, telling people there was going to be a house market crash. And they thought I was nuts. All of them thought I was crazy. <laughs> it was a very long period of hearing that. It was very annoying. Right. And in 08, I go get a haircut. My barber's like, hey, yeah, I'm flipping a home. Right. And that's when you know you're kind of at the top, like everyone's doing it that has, you know, on the side that is much more difficult to do. And everyone's getting access to the loans to do it that wouldn't normally get access to it, et cetera. Right. So that's one easier way. Or like you get into a taxi cab in 2007 and that taxi cab driver is slipping homes. And I'm not even exaggerating. This is true stories. Right. Um, In 2020, um, I was telling people, you know how like your barber and your taxi driver were flipping homes in 07? What were they doing in 2020 and 21? They were buying and selling crypto. Okay. Same thing, different time. Same thing, different time. And a lot of them were making a lot of money. Right. And I'm not trying to point single out crypto. I just think it's a similar indicator. I'm not saying that crypto is going to go down or up. I have no idea. That's one thing I definitely don't know. But the point is that that's another indicator of the top to me. It's the equivalent indicator. Right. Um, And so we've already, by the way, we've already seen a pretty large adjustment in um, multiples for startups. That's usually the first one to fall because it's the highest risk. And as of January, when the NASDAQ started to go down, there was a big adjustment in the secondary and private markets for uh, startup valuations. Because what what kind of adjustment was was I there. mean, it depends on the situation. Every company's different. Like some of the profitable, some of them aren't. But, you know, you can have like a 20% adjustment in the multiple right now. That's very realistic compared to what it was. So something that may have been worth $100 million, you know, literally in December could be worth $80 million today based on what someone is willing to invest at as, as far as a multiple of what it's worth today or even buy it at, say, right? right. That, that type of thing's already happened. Those are real numbers. So we've already seen that start. Um, but again, these are the normal dominoes that fall. And we, you know, and in fact, everything play out like it's supposed to. We're having, you know, interest rates go up, oil, inflation. We're having an inversion of the yield curve. We're having the really high risk stuff already adjust in price. And then the other stuff just follows, but it takes a while. And we're talking about a lot of macro stuff. So inflation, you Google inflation, you talk to people about inflation. They say real estate is a phenomenal asset class to be in inflationary times, you know, whether it be just your house, your you know, with your house, say you lock in a 30-year fixed rate, you know, so if there's inflation, you're paying, you know, the lender back with tomorrow's dollars, which are worth less, but your your property is supposedly appreciating in, in, in asset value. And then on the multifamily side, you're, you're talking about, okay, well, we lock in our funding costs and then rents, you know, if there's wage inflation, then rents should go up as well. So how do we kind of get comfortable with, okay, well, they say real estate's good in inflation, but 
and a recession may be coming and that could hurt asset prices. So where do we, where do you fall? Yeah, I actually don't disagree. I mean, I think that assets in general, hard assets and real estate specifically are good for keeping up with inflation. The problem is that we're going to go from inflation to deflation, right? And mm-hmm. I'm not saying long-term deflation, but I mean, asset prices and, and, and by the way, and probably rents and the economy, everything's going to, I mean, the fed is trying to actually deflate our growth right now. You have to understand that that's how it's trying to manage the reduction of the inflation to trying to get consumers to spend less and it's doing it by increasing interest rates. So people won't be able to borrow as much. They can't afford to borrow as much and everything's going to slow down. Right. And so, um, where, so I do agree that, that inflation, you know, by owning assets is good for inflation. Uh, it's not the same thing though, when everything starts to adjust, it's just a different scenario. Right. So, you know, one thing that I, I, I say is, you know, I feel bad for people that don't own assets, right? Because, you know, my kids and my wife, they, you know, will be saying, oh man, can you believe gas prices? And I'm like, yeah, it's, it really, it's terrible. Like that I have to, you know, pay this price, but I'm so thankful that I own oil stocks that are going up in value at the same time I'm paying more at the pump. Yeah. But there's other, other people that don't have that side benefit, you know, yes. that are just paying more out of their income and they don't have the asset that's appreciating at the same time. Yeah, and by the way, here's a great example. I just read this yesterday. California, um, cause I live in California. I saw the statistic. If you bought a house in 1970, at that point of inflation, um, median price was say 275, okay, 275,000. You buy the house today, median price is across the entire state, right? Median price is 880,000, okay? Oh uh, sorry. I, I totally screwed that up. If you bought a house in 1970, it was actually much lower than 275. If you adjusted that price today, okay, for inflation, just inflation, you'd be at um, 275, okay? But that actual median price today is 880. So it's actually almost three times higher than what it should be just adjusted for inflation. The difference is that asset prices have increased way above inflation in this particular state for a very long time, compounded, and now you're way behind, right? So that's another example. I, mean, I understand your point, and that look, look, you're talking to someone who lives off cash flow. So you know, I'm right. fortunate to have all these sources, and now I can pay for the extra gas, uh, right. ironically from some of my own investments. But anyway, so um, right, you know, but or any other investment or whatever, it doesn't matter. But the but keeping up when you talk about keeping up, I'm very concerned for the long term because wages have not been keeping up the last eleven months in a row. Inflation has been higher than wage increases. People have fallen behind in the last 11 months, right? Even though they're getting high increases, it's not high enough, right? right? And over the long term, if you don't own assets, you can easily fall behind because so much money has gone to assets and they become more and more attractive over time. So I cannot agree with you more. And I think it's going to have a worse and worse impact over time on the middle class and on people in, in the country, unfortunately. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think I, I personally think that's one of the, this show really isn't focused on that, but I think that's one of the biggest um, risks. And Ray Dalio talks a lot about that is the, is the disparity between the rich and the poor. It just yes. keeps getting wider and wider. Um, hey, talk about, you, you mentioned um, crypto just a little bit, but um, I know that you're invested in not only real estate, but you're also invested in businesses as well. Um, but on the real estate side, what's your take? Um, I don't know much about crypto, but I'm, I've been starting to try to read about it. And what's interesting to me is um, the underlying technology of blockchain. Mm-hmm. Like to me, that more so than you know having another you know currency to trade is that underlying technology, I think, can be applied to a lot of different things. Um, and I don't, you know, I, I liken it back to when I saw the internet and I was like, man, this is going to be huge. And I think that blockchain has the opportunity to be huge. What, what do you think about tokenization and blockchain and its impact on real estate and the liquidity of real estate? Yeah. So this is a really important topic to me. I've done a lot of research on it in the last year or two, because if you look at my situation, all the investments I have are illiquid, meaning that right. like I'm actually, it's illegal for me to sell them in the first year, I believe, due to the SEC laws. 
And then after that, I got to find someone to buy it. We don't know what the value is. I normally have to sell at a discount if I want to, because someone else is taking a risk on buying it for me. They don't know what it's worth. And I'm not going to normally spend thousands of tens of thousands of dollars on an appraisal, depending on what it is or how big the fund is. Um, and so if I could have liquidity of selling some of my shares at any time. That's a huge game changer for someone like me, right? That's one of the challenges or the, the cons of investing in syndications. They're very liquid. Now, couple of things I want to point out. First is use the word tokenization. And I just want people out there to understand exactly what that is, because I think that that is, in my opinion, it just sounds more complicated than it is. Tokenization just means digitization, right? It just means that, you know how you sign a subscription agreement, you sign a paper, and now that's accepted, and now you have shares, okay? And it's on some ledger somewhere. Well, the, the digital version of it is just your digital ownership of it. It's that simple. I would urge people not to make it more complicated than that. Cause if you just keep it that simple, it becomes easier to understand. Okay. So the concept is if you're able to digitize your shares and you have some type of security behind it, knowing that you really own the shares, right. And that could be validated, then you could sell them electronically. Okay. So that's the tokenization part. Now the, um, to be totally honest with you, I spent a lot of time because actually I've been an advisor with Realty Mogul since before they launched in 2012. It's one of the biggest crowdfunding sites. And my thought a year or two ago is, okay, what's next? What's the next big thing? And I thought tokenization sure. was going to be the next big thing. And I'm like, well, well, who better to look into this than me? And then I'm going to benefit hugely if it actually happens. And actually, can I even help to accelerate the adoption, right? Through my network of sponsors, investors, other investor groups. Can I actually excel? I, I thought I could. I really did because I have a big network. And what I discovered without naming any names is that the tokenization companies that can actually uh, op execute all this on behalf of sponsors and investors are currently charging, in my opinion, for non-institutional deals, too much money to the point where the hurdle is too high. And this is based on me talking to multiple sponsors about the fees, talking to multiple platforms about the fees and coming to that conclusion. And, and someone who wants this to happen coming that, to that conclusion that I think sure. it's going to happen eventually. I think the fees are the current hurdle. And I think that once the fees are able to come down enough, whether it's just that technology costs less over time or whatever it's going to be, I do think that's going to happen. I think it's going to have a huge impact on investing in this type of stuff in the next five to 10 years. I'm not optimistic for the next one to three years though. Right. At the moment. So no, that, that, that makes sense. Um, that takes away a lot of, I mean, if it becomes more liquid, you know, it can get a lot more people in the game. It could also provide people like yourself that has a lot of illiquid investments in the ability to, to provide some liquidity right. if you need it. Um, but you know, so, my experience also is that the more liquid a market is, you know, returns tend to, to you know, be squeezed. Yes, I 100% agree. I do expect that will happen. And I expect as an investor, I'm going to have a choice. I can invest in a deal from the beginning that I know is going to be tokenized at a lower return and I have the liquidity option, or I can invest in a traditional syndication I do today at a higher return. And I think that the terms for investors and other things may be a little worse in a tokenized because I think the sponsor would be able to command that because they know they're going to be providing that huge, uh, you know, optionality for the investor. So I 100% agree. And my intention is to have a portfolio that's combined of the two. I want to have some higher return and some lower return that's more liquid. And that's, our, that's exactly where I think it's going to go. I want to just point out one very important thing about this. So yeah, I'm a seed round investor. So one of the first investors in a company called Start Engine. Have you heard of Start Engine? I have not. They're the largest equity crowdfunding platform in the U.S. for start for raising money for startups. The largest okay. one, okay? They actually have their own. Um, so they like an angel investor conglomerate type of Yeah, company? so basically, you know, you can go onto that website, find at the moment over 100 companies listed to invest in, and you can invest tiny amounts in a crowdfunded structure. I'm talking about $500 or more type of thing across all these different companies, right? Okay. Good crowdfunding. And I think they've raised uh, money for over 600 companies to over half a billion dollars have been raised, okay? Now, they have their own what I call stock exchange. Technically, it's called an ATS or alternative trading system. It's kind of a stock exchange light that's been approved by the uh, SEC that's trading stocks on some of the startups right now. It's going to ramp up probably in the next year or two, hopefully. Now, the reason why I mention all this is because they don't use blockchain. Okay. And this is a very important point. I don't want investors to get, because one of the things I found is that these companies that are trying to be the front runners of all this are just making things too complicated, in my own opinion. They talk about this blockchain 102.4 secure technology. To be honest with you, I tell people like, I'm an investor. All I want to know, so think about buying a car, because actually my last job was at Toyota headquarters back in 06, 07. I'm a car guy. If you buy a Honda Accord, do you care 
whether it's just reliable to go from point A to point B, or do you care enough to know that your suspension is 40% magnesium, 20% aluminum, 40% steel, it was made in this place, it, it is at this degree, at this angle. No, you want the car, it feels smooth, and you want to go from A to B. All I care about is that it's secure and that it's you know using a decent technology. But more importantly, do I really care if it's on the blockchain or not, if, they, if it can be similarly secure? Probably not. And so I mention this because we don't necessarily need the blockchain. It just has to be a digital form of the shares being held by a transfer agent in digital form, just like your shares are today with an Apple stock, right? And it has to be someone else providing the secondary platform to execute on it. So I, I do want people, and I may be missing something, but if that my understanding is correct, I don't want people to get overly concerned about what is a blockchain. That's uh, something I don't understand. And because of the lack of knowledge, I, now it's more risky and I'm I'm afraid of it, right? So right. I'm just, you know, I'm hoping that some of the initial platforms aren't even blockchain so that people don't have to worry about that piece so that it's just a quicker adoption as an example. And it doesn't necessarily need to be like that. I just want to point all these things out because I've gone to some conferences, heard a lot of people talk, and I feel like one way or another it's going to happen, but it doesn't have to be too complicated. No, I and and the use case has to, it has to make sense. It has to make it more efficient and yes. more profitable rather than just use it to say you used it and then it costs more. Um, so I completely get you from that perspective. Um, and, you know, term terminology in any industry can throw people off. I mean, syndication, I think that's that word itself is, you know, intimidating. And yes. a lot of people are just afraid to get involved. Wow, that sounds too complex for me. Yes. You know, and it's just a bunch of people coming together to buy an asset they couldn't buy on their own. Yes. Um, but, you know, it can, it, so I understand your point in terms of tokenization, blockchain, crypto, it, it can overwhelm some people. Yeah. Um, uh, so in any event, hey, uh, man, we, I wish we could talk for like, Four hours. You are you are such a plethora of information, and I'm so thankful to Hunter Thompson for for pointing me in your direction because um, you know he had wonderful things to say. It sounds like you helped him out a lot early on in his his path, and um, you are involved in a lot of different investments. And I think just the thought of you know when I walk away from this conversation, just the thought of hey at the end of a cycle like this, focusing on short term so that I could redeploy, that's an interesting strategy and something to be, you know, to think about. Um, what do you, what's kind of like your next big stretch goal? You've already, you know, done so much. I mean, in term, what's, what's next on the horizon for Jeremy? It's a great question. Um, you know, very generically, I mean, I only have two things that come to mind immediately. One is, you know, I want to keep my cash flow snowball going and increase my net worth over time. And certainly my cash flow snowball is my most important thing that I focus on from a business perspective, because it's gotten me out of the corporate world and I want to stay out of the corporate world. It's 15 years later now, uh, and that's still going okay, but I don't want to mess that up. So that's number one. Um, number two is, um, you know, I've gotten to a point where I have a lot of different sources of capital and it's allowed our cash flow and it's allowed me to spend time on uh, various things. And so far, I've been able to spend a lot of time talking to other investors, helping investors, being on these types of podcasts, just hope, hopefully it's helping, helping people, right? I actually co-founded something called For Investors by Investors, a nonprofit in 2007 that with the sole goal was like, how do you go to networking events without having a sales pitch, right? We don't want to make any money off. We actually lost money off it every year so far, but that's fine because it's helping people. So if you ask me my other hope and goal is just to continue to help as many people as possible within the time constraints that I have, because that is the huge challenge. I have kids and everything else. And so kind of like you want to talk for four hours, I want to talk to as many people as possible. Right. Neither right. are you know, necessarily possible now. And so um, you know, that, that's my other goal is how do I continue to do that? either in a more efficient way or reach more people just to help more people without also, you know, wearing myself out essentially. And that's something I just constantly think about and, and may have to change at some point. Well, I thank you that you have that art for giving back and teaching other people. Um, and, you know, for some people it's, it's weird. Like for me in the multifamily space, it's been weird because there's so many people that, do give back and like help the next guy come in and the first time investor come in and, and, you know, 
sometimes you can be skeptical. Like, like, why is this person helping me? Why is this person like, and I think that, you know, what I've learned is when people get to a point, it's not all people. Okay. But when certain people get to a point of financial freedom, financial time, flexibility, like the next huge joy in life is helping somebody else achieve that same goal. Yes. Yes. I mean, I have a lot of calls each week with new people, for example, I don't charge for that time, obviously. Um, and, uh, it just kind of become my mindset now that I have the ability to actually bandwidth and, and the core foundation be able to do it. And so, but again, the big challenge I have again, is I work day and I actually work every night. Um, and I do a lot of hours, but that's the, the trade-off is that I, I can't help as many people if I don't work as many hours. So that's always right. the struggle. And that's why one of my goals is to figure out how to balance that better or maybe do it in a more efficient way, et cetera. But I don't want to help you know, less people. That's a big challenge for me coming up. Sure, in the next sure, year. sure. So with that said, um, is there a way for people to get to know more about you in yeah. some way well, or capacity? So I have a website or anything like that. I'm just kind of very, you know, conservative and all that, but you're, you can either find me on LinkedIn, I suppose, and see my okay. profile. Um, you can check me out on some, this podcast, other podcasts. Um, if it's helpful, I've been on over hundred podcasts, just different topics. Uh, and you're always welcome to contact me directly for sure. Anyone's welcome. So whether you're brand new and just want to pick my brain, whether you're an experienced investor that wants to network, that, that's always a fantastic thing. If you have another investor group you want to network, or if you're a sponsor and you want to network, just don't hesitate to reach out to me. Uh, my email is jroll, um, J-R-O-L-L at Roll Investments, R-O-L-L Investments with an S. So it's plural, dot com. So jroll at rollinvestments.com. Well, Jeremy, I really appreciate you coming on the show. Um, man, you, you have so much insight and uh, listeners, I hope that you really enjoyed that one. And until next week, signing off. Thank you for listening to Darren Batchelder's Real Estate Investing Show at darrenbatchelder.com. If you liked the episode, please provide us with a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or your podcast platform of choice. If you already provided us with a five-star review, then thank you. And please share the show with a friend.